Welcome to the Overcoming Adversity podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals that help listeners tackle the storms of life and become more resilient. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Having a hope in Christ is a theme woven throughout the scriptures. The word hope can imply a simple wish, or it can suggest a declaration founded upon experience and knowledge. The Apostle Paul said that, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The hope which Paul describes is much richer and different than a mere wish. Rather, it is related to knowledge and leads to a life of diligence. If we take a difficult class and put forth little effort to study or prepare for exams and assignments, we might say, I hope I get an A in this class. But in reality, that hope is nothing more than a wish, and deep inside we know it. If, however, we study effectively, monitor our progress, make corrections when necessary, and do all in our power to perform well in the class, we may be able to declare with assurance I have a hope that I will get an A in this class. Such a hope will be well-founded, and deep inside we will have a confident assertion that it will come to pass. According to Paul, if something exists which we cannot detect with the natural senses, then faith is the evidence that it is real. For those of us that have faith in God and His Son, Jesus Christ, that evidence born of faith is very real. Paul said that, Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Or in other words, hope is made up of the things in which we have faith. Faith precedes a true enduring hope that motivates us to press forward with a steadfastness in Christ. A life well founded upon faith in Christ, sincere repentance whenever needed, obedience to His commandments, humility and meekness, solidifies a true hope in Christ and naturally motivates one to demonstrate that faith, and hope through diligent service. Following this course, we will experience joy throughout our lives. Elder Richard G. Scott declared, True enduring happiness with the accompanying strength, courage, and capacity to overcome the greatest difficulties will come as you center your life in Jesus Christ. Obedience to his teachings provides a secure ascent in the journey of life. That takes effort. While there is no guarantee of overnight results, there is the assurance that in the Lord's time, solutions will come, peace will prevail, and happiness will be yours. In the Book of Mormon, Aaron, the missionary companion of Ammon, told King Lamoni's father, If thou desirest to know God, if thou wilt bow down before him, yea, if thou wilt repent of all thy sins, and wilt bow down before God, and call on his name in faith, Believing that ye shall receive, then shalt thou receive the hope which thou desirest. A life of repentance, obedience, and service, motivated by a love of God and unshaken faith in Christ, will generate a hope in Christ that will extend into the eternities. On the other hand, without a perfect brightness of hope in Christ, we may desperately cling to the scriptures and living prophets without ever truly believing Christ. When the storms of life blow, our faith may waver. The Apostle Paul declared, 
If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. I've been fascinated for years with a portion of the vision of the tree of life recorded in 1 Nephi chapter 8. In this vision, Lehi describes two groups of people who actually caught hold of the iron rod as they made their way to partake of the fruit on the tree of life. Remember that the iron rod represented the word of God and the fruit on the tree represented the love of God. One group pressed towards the tree, clinging to the rod of iron, while another pressed forward, holding fast to the rod of iron. The group that was clinging to the rod did make it to the tree and partook of the fruit. But afterward, when the world mocked them, they were ashamed and fell away. The group that held fast to the rod as they pressed forward also partook of the fruit, but then stayed. What was the difference? Clinging to me suggests desperation, like what might be done if there was fear or lack of hope in their lives. Perhaps they did not really believe Christ or accept the atonement, so that when the world pressed upon them, they became ashamed and fell away. The Apostle Paul taught the saints in Rome, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and hope maketh not ashamed. The group that Lehi saw holding fast to the rod endured to the end. Apparently they had an unshaken faith in Christ and a perfect brightness of hope because of the atonement. When I read the words holding fast in the description of this vision, I imagine individuals that stand firm against adversity or tribulation because of a hope in Christ. The Apostle Paul counseled the saints to be rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. We don't rejoice if we hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. We do rejoice, however, if we have a hope in Christ, and that hope helps us to be patient in tribulation. Nephi, who shared in Lehi's vision of the tree of life and witnessed those clinging to the rod of iron later to fall away, expanded on this thought. He said, And now, my beloved brethren, after ye have gotten into this straight and narrow path, I would ask if all is done. Behold, I say unto you, Nay, for ye have not come thus far, save it were by the word of Christ, with unshaken faith in him, relying wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. Wherefore, ye must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope, and a love of God and of all men. Note that Nephi is telling us that after we have gotten into this straight and narrow path, we must press forward with unshaken faith that leads to a perfect brightness of hope and a love of God and of all men, or what we may call charity. Unshaken faith, a perfect brightness of hope, and charity, or a love of God and of all men, that is the key. What promise do we have if we follow this formula? Nephi goes on to say, Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ, and endure to the end, behold, thus saith the Father, ye shall have eternal life. And now behold, my beloved brethren, this is the way, and there is none other way nor name given under heaven whereby man can be saved in the kingdom of God. A hope in Christ will motivate us to repent of our sins. Repentance will expand our capacity to receive and feel the Spirit, and enjoy the companionship of the Holy Ghost. It is through the power of the Holy Ghost that we may abound in hope. 
The corollary is also true. Sin causes a spirit to withdraw. Our faith in Christ diminishes and we lose hope. If life seems hopeless, and we may want to at least consider our own personal worthiness, remembering that even such things as ingratitude constitute sin. If we have fallen short, we can take comfort in knowing that Christ is mighty to save and that he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and the Lord will remember them no more. Attending the temple as frequently as our circumstances will allow is a great way to enter into this upward-lifting spiral of increasing faith and hope. I have considered that one of the great blessings associated with attending the temple is found in Doctrine and Covenants, section 109, the inspired dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple. In it, Joseph Smith blessed all those who shall worship in the temple that when they transgress, they may speedily repent and return to God. What a tremendous blessing to be given a desire to speedily repent so that sin doesn't have time to compound or fester. The prophet Ether did cry from the morning even until the going down of the sun, exhorting the people to believe in God unto repentance, saying unto them that by faith all things are fulfilled, Wherefore, whoso believeth in God might with surety hope for a better world, yea, even a place at the right hand of God, which hope cometh of faith. The natural man, clinging to the word of God, but lacking a foundation of sincere repentance, faith, and hope, lacks an eternal perspective and tries to get through the here and now, asking, why me, when trials arise? As the trials persist or intensify, He is not willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him and is prone to murmur, saying, It must not be true or life wouldn't be so hard. A son or daughter of God will humbly submit to adversity, knowing that ultimately God is in charge, having a hope that they will be better for the experience and all will be well in the end. The Apostle Paul taught, I hath not seen nor ear heard, Neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. C.S. Lewis put it this way. When a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well in the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected, he often feels that it would now be natural if things went fairly smoothly. When troubles come along, illnesses, money troubles, new kinds of temptation, he is disappointed. These things, he feels, might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent in his bad old days, but why now? Because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level, putting him into situations where he will have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he ever dreamed of before. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. This lesson has been taught to me and my wife in some profound ways. My wife has ancestors who were faithful Latter-day Saints going back to the early history of the church. They were among the pioneers who traveled to the Salt Lake Valley in wagons and handcarts. The faith and dedication of her family have remained strong over the generations. Our two oldest daughters, Christy and Lacey, were the fourth generation of sister missionaries following a pattern starting with their great-grandmother, Cecil Vance Coombs. Our 14-year-old daughter, Mackenzie, has expressed a similar desire to follow in their footsteps when she turns 21. 
I do not have a genealogical pioneer heritage, but with all members of the church, I share in the spirit and the spiritual heritage the pioneers left us. In our journey through life together, my wife and I have seen some parallels to the journey of the pioneers to the Salt Lake Valley. We started out with very little in the way of material possessions. We had great faith in one another, in our Heavenly Father and Christ, with the goal of the eternal family. Looking back from my current perspective, life was easy in the early years of our marriage. There were babies to be born, children to be raised, degrees to be earned, a career to be pursued, and callings to be fulfilled. For the most part, the course was a slow, steady, methodical journey across the great plains of life. There were occasional hills of adversity to climb, like the births of our third and fourth children, ten years apart, where serious complications resulted in the babies being placed in ICU for days. However, at the top of each hill of adversity, we experienced a panoramic view on life, and then there always followed the beautiful, peaceful valleys before encountering the next hill. Life was good. The sense of progress towards goals was strong. Our love and faith in each other and God continue to grow in a steady, deliberate way, matching our journey. As our journey through life progressed, just as in the case of the Pioneer Trek, the trail became steeper and the hills bigger. Occasionally, the Lord provided us with experiences that greatly increased our faith in Him, increasing our understanding of how personally, individually, we are each loved and nurtured. One major hill we encountered came at about 11.55 a.m. on June 3, 2001. I stood up to close our ward fast and testimony meeting when I felt a sharp pain and tearing sensation followed by the gushing of blood in my left pelvis. The thought came to me quite distinctly. I just ruptured my femoral artery. I'm going to bleed to death in a few minutes. I looked out over the congregation to my family thinking this might be the last time I would see them in this life. I debated whether I should say something, but decided, <laughs> but decided that I did not want to disrupt the spirit of the meeting. So after announcing the closing hymn and prayer, I just sat down. Because our second meeting was last in the block schedule, I knew that I had several interviews to conduct and other business that needed to be addressed. I was still alive and decided to continue my duties. <laughs> Nearly six hours later, I finally took the time to go to the emergency room. I explained to the nurse reception desk I thought I'd ruptured my femoral artery at noon that day. She kind of chuckled and said, no, you'd be dead by now. She asked me to describe the pain and thought it was probably a kidney stone. We sat in the waiting room about 30 minutes. When we were finally taken back to an exam room and able to see a doctor, I described the pain and said that I thought I'd ruptured my femoral artery about noon that day. He gave a little chuckle and said, you would probably be dead if that were true, and also indicated that he thought it was a kidney stone. He ordered a differential CAT scan to look for the stone. A few minutes after the procedure, the doctor came back into the room, quite sober, and said, there's a large pool of blood in your abdomen. I was rushed to another hospital. Another procedure was done to localize the site of the rupture, and I was prepped for emergency vascular surgery. It turned out that I actually ruptured my left iliac artery, which is larger than the femoral. The reason I did not bleed to death is because shortly after the aneurysm, a flap of inner arterial lining folded over, including the artery above the rupture. Experiences like this provide evidence for the truth that God knows each of us personally. We are cared for as individuals. He knows exactly how to succor us. 
We consider ourselves very blessed to the Lord. However, I remember the words of C.S. Lewis. Little people like you and me, if our prayers are sometimes granted beyond all hope and probability, had better not draw hasty conclusions to our own advantage. If we were stronger, we might be less tenderly treated. If we were braver, we might be sent with far less help to defend far more desperate posts in the great battle. I chose to speak about hope today because I've learned a lot about it over the past several years. There were other serious health issues, other surgeries, and other miracles. However, our trudge up Rocky Ridge in the face of the icy winds of adversity began on the afternoon of February 1st, 2006, when we received the shocking and unexpected news from Kansas that our daughter Lacey was in a hospital in a coma. She died the next day. We'll be eternally thankful for the rescue parties the Lord sent in the form of loving family and friends. Truly, they fulfilled the admonition of Alma to mourn with those that mourn, yea, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. We are especially thankful for the anonymous individual who allowed us to purchase a gravestone immediately after Lacey's death. This brought a great deal of comfort. It was months before I began to see color in a life that had become gray. I feared that I might forget how to laugh or never feel genuinely happy again. A day still does not go by that I do not think about Lacey several times. She was too well-loved to ever be forgotten. Gradually, the road became less steep and rocky. However, real healing for me did not come until 18 months later, after I climbed one more section of Rocky Ridge. To set the stage for this experience, I will start by telling you that I have kept a daily journal for years. Writing in my journal is somewhat therapeutic. I record my thoughts and feelings along with events in my life. I also need to tell you that my career has caused me to travel a considerable amount. These trips involve many airline carriers, both foreign and domestic, to nearly every continent in the world. During all of this traveling, I had never lost a bag until one trip about six months after Lacey's death. I was on a long trip that took me from Argentina to Chile to Ecuador, back to the U.S. through Miami to Reno, before returning home to Provo. All the bags made it through to Miami okay. <clears throat> However, somewhere between the nonstop flight from Miami to Reno, one bag was lost. I always put my journal in a carry-on bag so that it is with me at all times. I cherish my journals. However, for reasons that I cannot explain, I inadvertently packed it in a checked bag for the trip from Quito to Reno. As you might have guessed, my journal was in the checked bag that was lost. Against high odds, that bag was never recovered by the airline. That volume of my journal included daily entries for six months following Lacey's death at the time it was lost. I was devastated. The loss consumed me for months. Why did this happen, I wondered. After my experience with the aneurysm, I had firsthand knowledge that God is very much involved in the details of our lives. I knew that God knew where that bag was, but repeated prayers, accompanied often with fasting, did not bring it back. Eventually, I accepted the fact that the journal was not coming back and that there must be a reason for it. It wasn't until a little over a year later, near the end of a sabbatical leave at the University of Iowa, that I learned the reason for the loss of my journal. I was telling my wise bishop, Val Sheffield, of the loss of the journal, pining over the experience again and wondering why. He stopped me and said, 
I know why. It's because what you wrote following your daughter's death wasn't right. It didn't actually represent how you should respond to what happened. He went on, you need to write how you feel about our death looking back from the perspective you have now. It's a more accurate one. I was stunned. He did not know that over the past year, I had been engaged in diligent study, pondering and prayer about faith and hope. But the Lord knew. I went back to my apartment and thought about that for most of the night. I did rewrite my feelings about Lacey's death. It turned out to be a sacred and singular experience. Although I can't recall what I originally wrote in my lost journal, I am confident that it contained much of bitterness and anger. I'm now glad that it is gone. As my wife and I journey on, the depth and vitality of our faith and hope in Christ grows. We believe Christ when he tells us that he has the desire and power to save us. That steadfast faith is the bedrock of our bright hope that through our temple marriage, we will realize our goal of an eternal family, including Lacey. We have an assurance that the struggles involved in getting back home will seem but a small moment. We have cleaved together in a way that perhaps is not possible without the extreme heat and pressure of adversity. We can see that good can come from adversity if we have a hope in Christ. However, I think that Elder Neely Maxwell put it best when he said, Those who emerge successfully from their varied and fiery furnaces have experienced the grace of the Lord, which he says is sufficient. Even so, brothers and sisters, such emerging individuals do not rush to line up in front of another fiery furnace in order to get an extra turn. (laughs) In our most recent general conference, President Thomas S. Monson said, Mortality is a period of testing, a time to prove ourselves worthy to return to the presence of our Heavenly Father. In order to be tested, we must sometimes face challenges and difficulties. At times, there appears to be no light at the tunnel's end, no dawn to break the night's darkness. We feel surrounded by the pain of broken hearts, the disappointment of shattered dreams, and the despair of vanished hopes. We join in uttering the biblical plea, Is there no bomb in Gilead? We are inclined to view our own personal misfortunes through the distorted prism of pessimism. We feel abandoned, heartbroken, alone. If you find yourself in such a situation, I plead with you to turn to our our Heavenly Father in faith. He will lift you and guide you. He will not always take your afflictions from you, but He will comfort and lead you with love through whatever storm you face. Things do work out in the end if we trust the Lord. We cannot control some events that cause us great pain, but we can always control how we respond to them. We have no lasting power over another's agency, but we can control our own for eternity. We can choose to live in a world of disappointment, frustration, or anger. We can choose to take counsel from our fears, let faith slip away and have our hope diminish. But remember that God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love. Life is so much sweeter and richer if we have the humility to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon us, trusting that all things shall work together for good to them that walk uprightly. Near the end of the book of Alma, there's a great lesson about the significance of how we choose to respond to difficulties. The Nephites and Lamanites had been through years of wars. 
There had been much loss of life on both sides, much in the way of trials and afflictions. Listen to this assessment of the people after peace was finally reestablished. But behold, because of the exceedingly great length of the war between the Nephites and the Lamanites, many had become hardened because of the exceedingly great length of the war, and many were softened because of their afflictions, insomuch that they did humble themselves before God, even in the depth of humility. Wouldn't it be better to be among those whose hearts were softened as they did humble themselves before God? I wish to acknowledge that in the audience of people who are listening to my address today, or who may listen to or read it in the future, I'm sure that there are some, perhaps many, who have had far more difficult trials to endure than I. I do not wish to trivialize your trials if you fall into that category. I do pray that perhaps something of what I have learned from my experiences about hope may translate to your situation as well. We can all gain great hope and comfort from these words from the Lord. Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye are little children, and ye have not as yet understood how great blessings the Father hath in his own hands and prepared for you. And ye cannot bear all things now. Nevertheless, be of good cheer, for I will lead you along. The kingdom is yours, and the blessings thereof are yours, and the riches of eternity are yours. And he who receiveth all things with thankfulness shall be made glorious, and the things of this earth shall be added unto him, even a hundredfold, yea, more. It is my hope and prayer that we will all remain firm and resolute in following the Savior, developing a steadfast faith in Him, leading to a perfect brightness of hope for what lies ahead, including the eternities. I bear witness that God lives. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus, Jesus lives. He is my Savior, my Redeemer, my Advocate, and my Friend. I bear witness that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth. A prophet, even Thomas S. Monson, once again speaks on the earth. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Overcoming Adversity podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.